Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming. Yes. Dell Cinema Technology makes whatever you love to watch even better. Call 800-B-U-Y-Dell. That's 800-BY-Dell. To learn more, visit dell.com slash dellcinema. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. It's going to be mostly crying. Yes. This time. (laughs) Not going to be a lot of super adult content in this one, but just want you to be aware of that. So if that is not what you're into, please check out any one of the other great podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. Oh, yeah, it does. If you don't yet know why Big Baby Grop's wearing his very best jacket and trousers. The reason is sad. Spoiler. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. If Dumbledore was right, and I'm sure he was, there are still four of them out there. I've got to find them and destroy them. And then I've got to go after the seventh bit of Voldemort's soul, the bit that's still in his body, and I'm the one who's going to kill him. And if I meet Severus Snape along the way, he added, so much the better for me, so much the worse for him. There was a long silence. The crowd had almost dispersed now, the stragglers giving the monumental figure of Grop a wide berth as he cuddled Hagrid, whose howls of grief were still echoing across the water. We'll be there, Harry, said Ron. Welcome to Binge Mode, Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. It's a great website, guys. It's fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished sending a shower of arrows over my tomb in tribute. Don't worry, guys. They're not coming towards the crowd. They're going to fall way short. It's Ringer senior creative, your headmaster. Hello. Jason Concepcion. Mal. Before I disappear back into the cool trees, it's time for Binge Mode, Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're sitting with the centaurs, the people, or the two-faced ministry officials, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Also, hit us up on that Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And go ahead and join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to wonder where Dumbledore learned Mermish in the first place. Also... Head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our new binge mode merch. Man, there's some great stuff in there. How about um, my good friend Tom shirt? Yes, please. How about a tough look from my guy shirt? Love it. You won't be a tough look if you're wearing (laughs) binge mode merch. That's exactly right. (laughs) Beautiful. And how about binge mode classic shirts in house colors? That's right. Not appropriate for funerals, but good for all other occasions. Indeed. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how burdens shape chapters 27 and 28 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 29 and 30, the 
devastating conclusion devastating. of this masterful book. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. Mm-hmm. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep down with the Murr people. <laughs> On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Oh, yeah. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we hear Fox's lament. Oh. <sighs> so put on your dress robes, grab your tissues. It is time to head to Dumbledore's funeral. Mal, yeah. you said to me once before that there was time to turn back if I wanted to. I've had time, haven't I? So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 29 to 30 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine to plot the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo. Choo-choo. As dawn rises, Harry and his friends huddle in the hospital wing where Bill recuperates after being bitten by Fenrir Greyback. And Floor and Molly reconcile amid the tragedy. Hmm. McGonagall, the other head of house, and Hagrid debate if Hogwarts should even remain open with Dumbledore deceased. Then comes the headmaster's funeral, attended by all manner of magical beings. And Harry reflects on what has happened and what he must do next. He breaks up with Jenny. It's going to be for some stupid noble reason, isn't it? <laughs> to protect her. And he, Ron, and Hermione discuss how they will travel together to hunt Horcruxes rather than return to school next year. <sighs> Jason. Yes. There's no waking from this nightmare. No comforting whisper in our headphones that we're safe, really. That it's all in our imagination. The last and greatest of our podcasts has died. And we're more alone than we have ever been before. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. Woo! Yay! <laughs> it's gonna be a cheerful one! <laughs> so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 29 and 30 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is Assuming the Mantle. Chapter 29, The Phoenix Lament. Harry can't leave Dumbledore's side, refuses to, as Hagrid tries to pry him away. Only when Ginny's voice and Ginny's hand reach him does Harry rise, obeying the pressure for hand without realizing it's her responding to some deep connection, some deep trust in her touch and her scent and the flowery familiarity which he recognizes on the night air. Harry hears wails and shouts as Ginny leads him back to the castle. Think back to Harry's grief in the wake of Sirius's death when his fellow students laughed on the sunny grounds and, quote, he felt as distant from them as though he belonged to a different race. He's just as separate and apart now, even though his fellow Hogwarts members are grieving too. He's always apart, always separated by the burdens we discussed last episode and that continue to define Harry's life by the Horcrux-destroying task that he must now inherit from Dumbledore. Ginny tells him they're bound for the hospital wing, McGonagall's orders. Hearing the word hospital triggers Harry's unasked question. Ginny, who else is dead? He asks. She says no one on their side is, but reveals that Greyback got Bill. He's uh, a bit of a mess, she says, adding, he won't, won't look the same anymore. Take our leaders, take our schools, take our children, but leave Bill Weasley's face! Why was the handsome ones was always get scarred? It's nothing sacred. She says that Neville and Flitwick are hurt and a Death Eater is dead, killed by some other Death Eater's misfires. From the book again, Harry, if we hadn't had your Felix potion, I think we'd all have been killed. But everything seemed to just miss us. It's hard for Harry to even recognize, let alone hang on to anything positive right now. But this line from Ginny is a restorative draft. Harry worried that he put his friends in mortal peril, but really he saved them. (laughs) 
When they enter the hospital wing, Harry sees Neville asleep and Ron, Hermione, Luna, Tonks, and Lupin gathered around Bill's bed. Bill's face is so slashed that he's unrecognizable, quote, grotesque. Harry, thinking of Snape healing Malfoy's sectum semper-induced injuries, asks Madame Pomfrey if there's a spell to heal Bill, but there's no cure for werewolf bites. They're cursed wounds, as Lupin says. Bill wasn't bitten at the full moon, wasn't bitten by a transformed wolf, but these wounds will never fully heal. Much more on werewolves in today's restricted section. And then Ron says, quote, Dumbledore might know something that'd work, though. Where is he? Bill fought those maniacs on Dumbledore's orders. Dumbledore owes him. He can't leave him in this state. They don't know. Yeah. They haven't heard. It is incredible to think that this is even possible. Dumbledore's death is seismic, an event that's shaken the very fabric of life for Harry and the reader, and soon will for the wizarding world. Dumbledore's extinguishing breath feels like the kind of thing that every witch and wizard would feel instantly and innately in their cores and their souls. But of course, that's not how life works. People leave. People die. Sometimes we don't get to understand why. Sometimes the truth of it leaves us dumbfounded before we even get to the point of being able to ask why. The very reality of hearing the words melts the floor beneath us, rips something from the world that always felt elemental fully ingrained. Ron, Ginny says, Dumbledore's dead. The passage continues, no. Lupin looked wildly from Ginny to Harry as though hoping the latter might contradict her. But when Harry did not, Lupin collapsed into a chair beside Bill's bed, his hands over his face. Harry had never seen Lupin lose control before. He felt as though he was intruding upon something private, indecent. He feels this way in part because he recognizes what he's seeing in himself. The refusal to believe, the inability to even conceive of life absent this person, this constant. Consider, too, the substance of what Ron said before Ginny shared this news, because it's important both in a vacuum and in light of Harry's anxieties. Quote, Bill fought those maniacs on Dumbledore's orders. Dumbledore owes him. He can't leave him in this state. Remember what Harry thought to himself as he flew back to the castle toward the looming horror of the dark mark from the book. He was the one who had told them to patrol the corridors. He had asked them to leave the safety of their beds. Would he be responsible again for the death of a friend? At this moment, Harry is absorbed by his grief, but his guilt is never far away. And comments like this are bound to fuel Harry's increasingly fervent belief that he can't bring others into the belly of the beast with him. He's too much of a target, and to be around him is to invite danger. People believed in Dumbledore, considered him a god, a leader, a guiding light. If they can talk about his debts of gratitude, the restitution that he owes, what it's reasonable for Harry to wonder, will they say of him? Just because Harry must now assume the mantle doesn't mean that he feels worthy of it or that he's ready to quiet the voices inside, telling him that in an effort to save, he might actually wound. Right now, though, there are other voices to focus on. Tonks, whispering, asks how Dumbledore died. Harry tells them that Snape killed Dumbledore and that the headmaster, sensing a trap, mobilized Harry before Malfoy arrived to disarm him. Hermione and Ron react physically, audibly, to the Malfoy news. It's what Harry spent a year telling them, confirmed in the most painful and costly way imaginable. Harry wanted to be right, but not in this way, not at this price. But leaders don't always get to choose when clarity comes. As Madame Pomfrey bursts into tears, Ginny quiets the assembled so that they can listen to a new sound. Fox. Quote, somewhere out in the darkness, a phoenix was singing in a way Harry had never heard before, a stricken lament of terrible beauty. And Harry felt as he had felt about phoenix song before, 
that the music was inside him, not without. It was his own grief turned magically to song that echoed across the grounds and through the castle windows. This passage is so beautiful and sad. Think about what we know about phoenixes in general, and Fox in particular, explored on Pottermore, discussed at length in the restricted section on the final Chamber of Secrets book pod. Phoenixes assume such a central role in this story because they're J.K. Rowling's favorite animal. We see them elsewhere in the Potterverse, like in the Makusa lobby, but we associate them fully with Dumbledore and healing and hope. We also associate them with the link between Harry and Voldemort. Fox's tail feathers comprise the twin cores of Harry and Voldemort's wands, making Fox a tie between three of the story's primary figures. Fox has saved two of those three many times, coming to Harry's aid in the Chamber of Secrets, healing Harry's leg wound and goblet, using his feathers to send messages and warnings in order, when he also helped Dumbledore escape the Ministry mob in his office and swallowed a killing curse whole to save his human. He was able to swallow that spell, of course, because phoenixes regenerate from their own ashes, an arch symbol in a story about the power of sacrifice, of renewal and rebirth. As Newt tells us in his textbook, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, phoenixes are listed as a class XXXXX, 5X, beast, not because they're dangerous, but because so few wizards have ever succeeded in domesticating them. But we know from Dumbledore that when phoenixes are domesticated, quote, they make highly faithful pets. The bond that Fox and Dumbledore shared is exceedingly rare, and time and again we saw that uncommon connection bear magical restorative fruit. Phoenix tears have healing powers, and Phoenix song is magical too, filling the worthy with courage and the wicked with fear. Fox can't cry down now, as Frank the Thunderbird rained upon the masses at the end of Fantastic Beasts, soaking the aching assembled with his healing tears. But of course, mourning isn't something to wash away, like venom in a wound. As John Green wrote in The Fault in Our Stars, pain demands to be felt. It might seem strange to compare the love that Fox and Dumbledore shared with the bond that Harry and Dumbledore built, but that's the magic of this moment. Fox's lament is in the very air around the mourners, enveloping them as it pays tribute to Dumbledore's impact, blanketing them as it champions Dumbledore's love, unifying them in their grief and their despair. That sorrow isn't something that Harry or anyone else can yet articulate but it's something they must feel, something that Fox's song is awakening and giving form. Quote, How long they all stood there listening, he did not know, nor why it seemed to ease their pain a little to listen to the sound of their mourning. But it felt like a long time later that the hospital door opened again and Professor McGonagall entered the ward. When she speaks, quote, The spell of the music was broken. She asks Harry what happened, and when he tells her that Snape killed Dumbledore— From the book, she stared at him for a moment, then swayed alarmingly. She says, quote, we all wondered, but he trusted. Always Snape. I can't believe it. To which Lupin replies, Snape was a highly accomplished Occlumens. We always knew that. Tonks responds, but Dumbledore swore he was on our side. I always thought Dumbledore must know something about Snape that we didn't. McGonagall, he always hinted that he had an ironclad reason for trusting Snape. Note how every single one of these lines about Snape and his allegiance contains the word always. One book, one year of Harry's life before the famous utterance of always by Snape in The Prince's Tale, a dumberative of the moment that will answer the questions McGonagall, Lupin, and Tonks are posing here. Consider, too, the substance of what they are all saying. Snape is an accomplished Occleman, so accomplished that he's besting Voldemort even now. Dumbledore does know something, does have an ironclad reason for trusting Snape. 
And we and Harry will see it at last in Snape's memories and Hallows. But as these brave and brilliant witches and wizards sit here, absent that knowledge, they're left with nothing but regret and doubt, which makes what Snape and Dumbledore did all the more remarkable. Snape knew that he was sacrificing whatever shreds of his reputation remained. Dumbledore knew that Harry and the members of his own army, the Order of the Phoenix, would question his judgment and his trust after Snape's action atop the tower. And they did it anyway. The story is full of sacrifices, many shapes and sizes. And each one is a lesson for Harry, even if he can't appreciate it fully at this time. The agony of this moment stems in large part from the fact that in this moment, the opposite lessons seem more likely to take root. That as Harry takes up the mantle of Dumbledore's war, he'll be undone by what he's witnessing here. When he sees what he thinks is the carnage of mistakes made and leadership lost, when he witnesses the wreckage left when a man is revered and championed, as Dumbledore seemingly proves fallible at last. When McGonagall continues by saying, quote, Dumbledore told me explicitly that Snape's repentance was absolutely genuine. Wouldn't hear a word against him. Tonks says that she'd love to know what had convinced the headmaster so fully. I know, Harry says, and he goes on to tell them about Snape informing Voldemort of the prophecy, thereby leading to Lily and James's death. Quote, then Snape told Dumbledore he hadn't realized what he was doing. He was really sorry he'd done it. Sorry that they were dead. This is, of course, not exactly right. <laughs> As Lupin notes in response, Snape loathed James. Mm-hmm. The idea of his repentance hinging on James Potter's demise seems misguided to the point of madness. Quote, and he didn't think my mother was worth a damn either, Harry adds, because she was muggle-born. Mudblood, he called her. Of all the unwitting mischaracterizations and falsehoods uttered during this exchange, this is the most galling in light of the reveals to come. Snape's love for Lily defined his life, and Harry's too. Snape took on his own mantle, when he came to Dumbledore and begged for help, and then when he committed his life to working to avenge the loss of Lily's, He, like Harry, had to bear the responsibility of a task that few could appreciate and fewer still could understand. There is a suffocating loneliness at play here, but a loneliness that, counterintuitively and wonderfully, points to one of the story's sources of strength, love. The reason that Snape decided to fight for good the thing that will pull Harry out of the pit of isolation that he's about to find himself in. As the group sits in, quote, horrified shock, McGonagall says that this is all her fault. We start to get the truth of what transpired within the castle on this night. She sent Flitwick to fetch Snape for assistance and doesn't believe that he knew before then that the Death Eaters were present. Draco's refusal to let Snape in extended this far as fellow members of Voldemort's army infiltrated the castle that Snape calls home. They did not bring Snape into the plot. Lupin, rightly, tells McGonagall that it's not all on her. Quote, we all wanted more help. We were glad to think Snape was on his way. This gets to the heart of one of the sources of dissonance at play in war. It's hard to know whom to trust, and harder still after trust proves to be, or at least appears to be, misplaced. The instinct to go at it alone can be all-consuming, but the desire to come together to find strength in numbers and comfort in aligning is a stronger force in the end. Harry asks what Snape did next. He, quote, wanted every detail of Snape's duplicity and infamy, feverishly collecting more reasons to hate him, to swear vengeance. McGonagall says that on Dumbledore's orders upon leaving the school, she, Lupin, Bill, and Tonks patrolled. All seemed quiet. Even now, she doesn't know how the Death Eaters got in. More credit here to Draco for the true genius of his plan. Harry tells them about the vanishing cabinets, their magical pathways in the Room of Requirement. From the book, almost against his will, he glanced from Ron to Hermione, both of whom looked devastated. This isn't 
a told-you-so moment, and Harry genuinely isn't looking to be vindictive. He feels culpable, if anything, unable to stop this runaway train as it was barreling down the tracks. He feels lost. He feels bitter sorrow and hate. But he also can't totally help himself. Mm -hmm. Since the summer trip into Diagon Alley, he's told Ron and Hermione uh, and Lupin and Arthur and Dumbledore and McGonagall and anyone who would listen that Draco was up to something, that he joined the Death Eaters, that this wasn't a schoolboy prank or a transgression to hand wave, but a real threat to treat with deliberation, care, and seriousness. He knew something was happening in the room of requirement, and he asked Ron and Hermione to stand guard. And true to their word, true to their friendship— True to Harry's parting wish as he rushed off to Dumbledore's call, they did. But Draco got away anyway. We learn that Ron and Hermione did as Harry asked, checking the Marauder's map. When they failed to spot Malfoy on it, Ron, Ginny, and Neville went to stand guard by the room of requirement, knowing he must be in there. Malfoy exited clutching his hand of glory, which gives light only to the holder. And as soon as he saw his fellow students awaiting him, he used Peruvian instant darkness powder to send the hallway into pitch blackness then used his light to guide his fellows. When our friends, who were rightly afraid to fire any curses in the dark lest they hit each other, finally made their way back to a lit corridor, they ran into Lupin and co., who found the Death Eaters moments later, at which point war broke out in the corridors. A Death Eater named Gibbon ran up to set off the dark mark and then, presumably afraid to meet Dumbledore, ran back down, at which point his own ally's killing curse, which just missed Lupin, hit Gibbon instead. And here we must inform the listeners that Zachary Cram suggested in our outline that we give Phoenix song to Gibbon. Please roast Cram mercilessly, people, at the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Truly an unbelievable take. (laughs) Not sure why we would do that, but that's fine. I have to assume he was kidding, but that's not going to stop us from roasting him. Hermione, we learned, was with Luna, monitoring Snape's office. But without the map, they lacked clarity on the events unfolding elsewhere. And when Flitwick sent by McGonagall, as we now know, arrived shortly before midnight and entered Snape's office. They heard a thud. Snape told them that Flitwick had collapsed. Hermione, explaining this now, realizes that Snape must have stupefied Flitwick. They think here to remove a foe from the field, but in reality, we can deduce it was to keep Flitwick out of harm's way and also to decrease the number of people who might mess up the long con that Snape and Dumbledore were pulling. Hermione is sick over having let Snape go, but Harry just wants to push for more information. He needs yeah, every nugget need he that can get. He wants to keep tracking Snape's path through the castle in his mind's eye, collecting every detail to store like little acorns of hate. Tonks continues to recount the events of the battle, the Battle of the Order was losing with Neville and Bill injured. They couldn't break through the barrier that blocked the tower stairs. McGonagall wonders if you had to know a spell. Harry speculates that you'd need a dark mark. Mm-hmm. When Snape and Draco emerged, no one chased them because everybody was like, oh, let him through. Snape is rescuing Draco from this. As they fall silent and Fox's lament continues to wash over them from outside, quote, unbidden, unwelcome thoughts slunk into Harry's mind. He wonders if they've moved Dumbledore's body, where it will go, what will happen to it. As his clenched fist rests against the fake Horcrux in his pocket, Molly, Arthur, and Fleur enter the ward, terror on their faces. Molly rushes past everyone to kiss Bill's bloody forehead, and it's an agonizing, tender glimpse into motherhood. He could be a literal heap of shredded flesh, and she'd just want to hold her boy, her firstborn. As Arthur asks what will happen to Bill, given that Greyback wasn't transformed when he attacked, Molly takes the ointment from Madame Pomfrey and begins to treat her son's wounds. 
And as Arthur asks about Dumbledore, Molly begins to weep, speaking over her son's body. Of course, she says, it doesn't matter how he looks. It's not really important. But he was a very handsome little boy, always very handsome. And he was going to be married. Remember that Molly opposed Villainfleur's union earlier in the book, worried that they were rushing in, hurrying not because of their feelings, but because of the weight of war. But she never opposed Bill being happy. And here she's faced with the threat of that life and that love being ripped away from her son. But she's wrong to fear it. And what do you mean by that? said Flora suddenly and loudly. What do you mean he was going to be married? And here unfolds one of the most truly, purely wonderful exchanges in the series. A reminder that, as Dumbledore once told the school following Cedric's death, differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. Molly and Floor have never thought or acted the same way. But their aims have been and remain identical. They both love Bill, and they both want to win this war. And when Molly begins to answer, Floor cuts her off before she can explain. <laughs> you think Bill will not wish to marry me anymore? Demanded Floor. You think because of these bites he will not love me? No, that's not what I... Because he will! It would take more than a werewolf to stop Bill loving me. This pussy's so good! <laughs> this is, of course, not what Molly meant. Molly is an extremely kind-hearted woman, but some part of her has always wondered whether Floor, an incomparable beauty, loved Bill for more than his looks, wondered how much substance was really there below the surface. And Floor knows it. You thought I would not wish to marry him? Or perhaps you hoped? Said Flora, her nostrils flaring. What do I care how he looks? I am good-looking enough for both of us, I think. Iconic. <laughs> All these scars show that my husband is brave. Incredible. And then she takes the ointment from Molly and starts treating Bill's wounds oh, she fucking herself. S- she snatches that ointment out of Molly's hands. And I will do that! <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a special... <laughs> Truly special moment with Floor defying expectations, yeah. proving her mettle. Her love for Bill is pure and anything but shallow. Yes, listen, Floor can pull hotties any day of the week. Exactly. Been there, done that. She's pulling tens and has been pulling tens for a long time. Just ask Roger Davies's husk. Yeah, it's what just, happens. Listen, she's looking for a real dude and Bill is that guy. This admiration for her husband's courage and bravery. This affection, this sincerity is aspirational and inspirational. It's the kind of salve that restores faith in humanity and reminds us all what we're fighting for. But the tension in the room is thick. Molly, however, does not explode. She is ultimately as moved as any of us. And when she speaks, it's to offer Flora great Auntie Muriel's goblin-made tiara for the wedding, saying, it would look lovely with your hair. Flora thanks her, and then they fall into sobs, hugging each other. They are united by their love for Bill, just as everyone in that room is united by their shared affection and common goal. This is their fight now, and a reminder of the stakes is stretched out before them. A bloody mess, but an inspiration, too. Bill fought. Bill chose to fight, just as they all must do. More shocks to come. Yes. However, this is not the end of the relationship drama. Tonks responds to this sight by shouting, You see? To Lupin. (sighs) She still wants to marry him, even though he's been bitten. 
I was like, honey, not right now. Can you just... <laughs> As Lupin begins to say that it's not the same, that Bill won't be a true werewolf. Although, by the way, no one knows what mm-hmm. the effects are going to be right now. Mm-hmm. This is a legitimately singular case. It clicks for Harry. Tonks wasn't in love with Sirius. She's in love with Lupin. The Patronus wasn't a dog. It was a wolf. She wants to be with him, but he's afraid. Afraid of what he could do to her, of what he'll cost her. But I don't care either, she says. I don't care. She seizes the front of Lupin's robes and shakes them. I've told you a million times. Lupin can't even bring himself to look at her, as he replies. And I've told you a million times that I'm too old for you, too poor, too dangerous. And this is gut-wrenching stuff. Recall how Lupin spoke of Dumbledore at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban. Quote, Dumbledore's trust has meant everything to me. He let me into Hogwarts as a boy, and he gave me a job when I have been shunned all my adult life, unable to find paid work because of what I am. What I am, not who I am. Right. Dumbledore made Remus feel that he was normal, that he could live life just like the rest of us. But even amid the trust and that inclusion, things happened that made Remus doubt that. He had to leave his post after transforming in front of students and nearly injuring them, and after Snape outed him, of course. Part of the reason that Lupin so resented his assignment to embed with the werewolves this year is because it felt on some unspoken level like a retraction of that gift that Dumbledore had granted him, of the testament that Lupin was more than what his bite made him. Tonks wants Lupin to find that gift again with her, to build a life with her, but he doesn't think that he's worthy of such a thing. We'll hear similar language from Harry later when he's talking about Ginny. That idea that someone who's given so much to so many doesn't think he deserves to feel that in turn is more heartbreaking than almost anything else that happens in this series. When Molly tells Lupin that he's being ridiculous, he says, I'm not being ridiculous. Tonks deserves somebody young and whole. And then Arthur comes in with the heartbreaker. Quote, but she wants you, said Mr. Weasley with a small smile. And after all, Remus, young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. And he gestures toward his son, toward Bill. Think of Jamie Lannister's words. We don't get to choose who we love. Now, that may seem like a contrary sentiment in a story about the paramounts of choice. Yeah. But there's something here worth considering. Love isn't always easy. Love isn't always clean. But when it's real, it's worth fighting for. Which McGonagall reminds Lupin of when he tries to redirect the conversation by saying, this is not the time. Dumbledore's dead. McGonagall says, quote, Dumbledore would have been happier than anybody to think that there was a little more love in the world. And she's right. Dumbledore lost... So much love so early in his life. His parents, his sister, his brother in a fashion, Grindelwald. He believed Snape because he believed fully in the power of love and regret. And though he never shared that particular Lily-centric truth with Harry or told Harry about his own history, he took every other opportunity he could to remind Harry of the power of the force that they study behind the locked door in the Department of Mysteries. In the end, Dumbledore told Harry in Order of the Phoenix, It mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Tonks wants Lupin to let his heart save him, too. Haggard enters, and he is a fucking mess. Very tough. Face soaked by tears, swollen with emotion. And he tells McGonagall that he's moved Dumbledore's body. She asks Hagrid to tell the head of houses to meet in her office. Slughorn will represent Slytherin now that Snape is gone. She asks Hagrid to be there as well and then asks Harry for a private word. They walk, not to her office, but to the headmaster's, and it dawns on Harry. With Dumbledore dead, the deputy headmistress has ascended to the role. 
But that cool logic doesn't make this blow any softer. Every confirmation that Dumbledore is really gone feels like watching him get blasted over the ramparts again. Harry wonders if the office will be draped in black or even if Dumbledore's body will be there, but it looks just the same as when he left, and this is jarring for him. Remember the words from the Prince book jacket. As in all wars, life goes on. The sorting hat and the sword of Gryffindor are there, and the many silver instruments puffing smoke and bobbing up and down, but there are two gutting differences. Fox's perch is empty. Yeah. And there's a new portrait on the wall. This feels for the reader like the body bind curse lifting felt for Harry. It's confirmation, utter proof, undeniable finality. Dumbledore has joined the ranks of the former, has moved into the past tense. From the book, Dumbledore was slumbering in a golden frame over the desk, his half-moon spectacles perched upon his crook nose looking peaceful and untroubled. This is a physical manifestation of the landscape-altering change that's occurred, of the responsibility that Harry now bears. Professor McGonagall recovers from seeing the portrait and asks Harry, without pretense, where he and Dumbledore were that night. I can't tell you that, Professor, Harry says. He's ready for the question, knowing that this must be why she asked him to meet. Quote, It had been here in this very room that Dumbledore had told him that he was to confide the contents of their lessons to nobody but Ron and Hermione. And this is really fascinating to consider. Dumbledore told him that, yes. Dumbledore warned him of the danger of too many people learning what he'd discovered about Voldemort's past. It's true. But Harry so often resented that part of his relationship with Dumbledore, Dumbledore's secrecy, so often questioned the wisdom of dispensing information like a precious commodity to be rationed and controlled. Mm. Harry suffered the effects of this habit firsthand, felt the bitter indignation of those moments when his thirst for information and access was rebuffed, felt, worse still, how severe the consequences of secrecy could be when Sirius fell beyond the veil. Does assuming Dumbledore's mantle necessarily have to mean assuming Dumbledore's approach? Should it have to mean that? Harry could choose to let McGonagall in here, but he doesn't. And when he and Ron and Hermione set off in Hallows, they'll keep everyone else in the dark, too. It's worth thinking about how these lessons take root. How even the behaviors that we resent inform how we think and feel and behave. Secrecy is not in Harry's nature, but it has been a part of his nurturing. McGonagall says, Harry, it might be important. And he tells her that it indisputably is. But that importance in his mind and in Dumbledore's too only heightens the need for discretion. Potter, she says, and Harry notes the return to his surname after her brief diversion into the more intimate and familiar use of his given name. Quote, I think you must see that the situation has changed somewhat, she says. I don't think so, Harry says in reply. Professor Dumbledore never told me to stop following his orders if he died. Mere hours ago, before Harry and Dumbledore set off for the cave, they were arguing in this very office over Dumbledore's judgment and his choices. But the headmaster's death has solidified Harry's loyalty, in part because he misses Dumbledore so deeply and in part because he knows that the burden of finding Voldemort's horcruxes is now his to bear. And he's already feeling in this moment how different it is to be the one answering the questions instead of the one asking them. Harry takes control of the conversation by telling her there's only one thing, only one, it's a bit harsh, Tough. that she should know. <laughs> I know it's been a hectic night. I know that uh, you feel entitled to information, but I, I just have one thing for you. I'm sorry. Madame Rosmerda, under the Imperious Curse, and then Sprout, Flitwick, Slughorn, and Hagrid. 
still, quote, weeping copiously arrive. McGonagall hurries before the minister arrives. She wants to discuss Hogwarts' future. She's assuming a mantle, too, the governance of the school, at least until it falls into Snape's and thus Voldemort's hands in the following year. She says that she's not convinced the school should even open next year. She says, the death of the headmaster at the hands of one of our colleagues is a terrible stain upon Hogwarts' history. It is horrible. Which, yep. I mean, there's no arguing with this. But Sprout says that Dumbledore wouldn't have wanted the school to close. And we know that she's right. That Clearly, that is everything we know about Dumbledore says that, yes, that's what he would have said. He fought so hard against Voldemort and for good to prevail so that life in the wizarding world could go on undisturbed by fear, undiluted by evil. He fought to protect Hogwarts and all that it stood for. Sprout, showing the signature loyalty and steadfastness of her house, is ready to fight for it, too. I feel that if a single pupil wants to come, then the school ought to remain open for that pupil. Shouts to Sprout. Slughorn isn't so sure. A single pupil will want to come, though. He says, personally, I don't think we're in more danger here at Hogwarts than we are anywhere else. No safer place. But you can't expect mothers to think like that. They'll want to keep their families together. It's only natural. But Hogwarts is a family, at least when it is at its best. McGonagall agrees with Slughorn and reminds them that Dumbledore himself considering closing the school when the Chamber of Secrets reopened. She says, And I must say that Professor Dumbledore's murder is more disturbing to me than the idea of Slytherin's monster living undetected in the bowels of the castle. Flitwick says they have to consult the governors, and then McGonagall asks for Hagrid's opinion from the book. Professor Dumbledore always valued your views, said Professor McGonagall kindly, and so do I. Hagrid, tears leaking down his face, says that he's staying, and then if any student wants to return, he'll teach them. But I don't know Hogwarts without Dumbledore. It's a terrible thought. It's almost an impossible thought, one totally incongruous with the reality they've all known for so long. Dumbledore was Hogwarts for them, was the organizing principal at the center of Hogwarts. The castle was the safest place because of him. The castle felt like home in part because of him. In this moment, that makes it difficult to even contemplate Hogwarts moving forward. But ultimately, That gives the castle life and vibrancy. Remember the words that Dumbledore himself said to Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban after Harry shared that he thought his father had cast the Patronus that drove away the Dementors. You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? Dumbledore may be dead, but he hasn't left Harry nor anyone else at Hogwarts. Not really. He'll always be with them in the stone walls around them in the rustle of the leaves of the Forbidden Forest and the Phoenix Song in the Air. When McGonagall mentions sending the students home tomorrow, Harry asks about Dumbledore's funeral. He wanted to be laid to rest at Hogwarts, but no other head ever has. The assembled are unanimous. Dumbledore gave more to the school than anyone, and he should rest here forevermore. And the students should get to be there. Harry says, quote, they'll want to say. The last word caught in his throat, Professor Sprout completed the sentence for him. Goodbye. Harry asks if he can go before Scrimgeour arrives. McGonagall grants him his leave. And he makes his way back to the Gryffindor common room, the fat lady swinging open for him without even asking for the password, just for confirmation of Dumbledore's death. The common room is packed and falls silent when Harry enters, but he goes straight upstairs where Ron is waiting for him. Ron asks about the Horcrux. Quote, All that had taken place around the Black Lake seemed like an old nightmare now. Had it really happened? And only hours ago? Harry explains that the Horcrux they found was a fake that someone had taken the real one, and he hands the locket and the note to Ron. But he doesn't have the strength to discuss it. Quote, this part kills me. The full story could wait. It did not matter tonight. Nothing mattered except the end. 
the end of their pointless adventure. The end of Dumbledore's life. Harry's grief is speaking here, and many of us would feel the same way. But remember what Dumbledore taught him when Harry voiced a similar deflated hopelessness after Pettigrew got away in Prisoner of Azkaban. Didn't make any difference, Dumbledore said to him then. It made all the difference in the world, Harry. You helped uncover the truth. You saved an innocent man from a terrible fate. Harry helped uncover the truth in the cave, too. And he's a lot closer than he realizes to solving the riddle of R.A.B.'s identity. It's Regulus Black. And then finding the real locket and then the rest of the Horcruxes, too, including the one inside of him. Dumbledore's life wasn't in vain and neither was his death. It just doesn't feel that way right now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel anything but miserable and empty. And when Ron asks who R.A.B. is, Harry says he doesn't know. Quote, he felt no curiosity at all about R.A.B. He doubted that he would ever feel curious again. He will, and fiercely so, but right now he's drowning in his grief, just as he nearly drowned in the lake in the cave. His best friend is next to him. His next clue is in their hands. The certainty of his mission, as he just conveyed to McGonagall, is very clear to him. But remember, pain demands to be felt. The lesson about the ones we've loved never truly leaving us requires a perspective that Harry, that no person would be able to maintain in this moment. There's only the sorrow and the song, and then there's only the sorrow. Quote, as he lay there, he became aware suddenly that the grounds were silent. Fox had stopped singing, and he knew without knowing how he knew it, that the phoenix had gone, had left Hogwarts for good. Just as Dumbledore had left the school, had left the world, had left Harry. Chapter 30, The White Tomb. All classes are suspended. Some students, their parents naturally fear-struck, are spirited from school in the days following Dumbledore's death. Most, however, remain to pay their respects to the man who had shaped their lives in so many ways. They're joined by Madame Maxime, headmistress of Beaubaton, <laughs> and a delegation from the ministry, including Scrimgeour. Harry, Ron, and Hermione and Ginny spend every moment together. From the book, the beautiful weather seemed to mock them. But if Hogwarts is no longer a sanctuary, these friends can still find refuge in each other's company. These four understand each other in a way that goes beyond words, beyond friendship, really. Ron and Hermione, of course, are Harry's closest friends and have been at his side since the very beginning. Dumbledore, a famously secretive man, understood the importance of this relationship and insisted that Harry share what he learned on his joint missions with the headmaster, with his friends. Less charitably, we must note that he did this as well out of a sense of practicality, ensuring that someone else would be able to finish the mission should Harry fail. It's the same cold logic that Harry will use when deciding to tell Neville about Nagini on his way toward the forest and Howells, ensuring that three people are still in on the quest once Harry dies. And Ginny, of course, is the love of Harry's life. What's more, after her trial with Tom Riddle's diary, They share a singular understanding of Voldemort's evil influence. There's a sweet safety here that no one would want to lose. And so, quote, hour by hour, he put off saying the thing that he knew he must say, doing what he knew was right to do, because it was hard to forego his best source of comfort. They visit Bill in the hospital twice a day. As Molly observed earlier in the book when she lamented people perhaps unwisely pairing off, when the future is uncertain, people tend to draw closer together. Fleur continues to be a champion at Bill's bedside, turning lemons into lemonade, or rather, turning steaks into rare steaks. The only effect, beyond the scarring of Fenry's attack, 
at this point in time, appears to be a sudden appetite for bloody steaks. P.S. That's the best way to eat a steak, you guys. <laughs> so eat these lucky ease, marrying me, said Fleur happily, plumping up Bill's pillows. Because the British overcooked their meat, I have always said this. <sighs> Fleur's pretty great. She's the best. Yeah. The only Fleur could complain about the Hogwarts cooking it's or Molly's uh, cooking. Cooking is terrible, Molly. <laughs> it's a miracle that your children have survived healthy to this point. You feed them this. <laughs> After Ginny kisses Harry goodnight one evening, quote, Ron looked away pointedly. <laughs> Still with this. At some point, act like you've been there. <laughs> you got to get over this. I love little moments like that, even in these stretches of utter despair because it's like this is life this is is Ron this is life it's all still here Hermione after Ginny exits tells Harry that she's found something in the library R.A.B. Harry asks now in the past Harry would have approached a puzzle such as this with a kind of gleeful curiosity a real zeal for exploration but Harry aware now of the challenge ahead and the toll paid to get to this point has placed childish things aside has lost the remaining innocence that once let him lust after solving such a mystery. Now, quote, he simply knew that the task of discovering the truth about the real Horcrux had to be completed before he could move a little further along the dark and winding path stretching ahead of him, the path that he and Dumbledore had set out upon together, in which he now knew he would have to journey alone. Consider some of these words, alone, have to. There's a utilitarian quality to Harry's thoughts here. A willful isolation and determination that belies so much of what he's learned. Remember what Dumbledore preached to Harry after seeing Slughorn's true memory as they argued about the prophecy and the pull of destiny, the paramounts of choice. Quote, it all comes to the same thing, doesn't it? Harry asked then, I've got to try and kill him. Or, got to, Dumbledore replied imploringly. Of course you've got to. But not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. Recall, too, what Dumbledore said to Harry after their journey to court Slughorn, as Harry confessed that he had not yet told Ron and Hermione about the prophecy. Quote, you need your friends, Harry. As you so rightly said, Sirius would not have wanted you to shut yourself away. It feels like nothing will ever be the same after Dumbledore's death. But in these respects, at least, nothing has changed. Harry, assuming the mantle from Dumbledore in the fight against Voldemort, is in many ways the natural order, the outcome that Harry and Voldemort's history always promised. But he still needs his friends. He still needs to remember the breakthrough that he made after Dumbledore raged at him that night in his office. Quote, it was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. This is Harry's burden, yes, but he can still set the terms. As Harry reflects on the four remaining Horcruxes that will need to be destroyed before Voldemort can be killed, by the way, it's five, which is a siren blaring in, I'm sure, all readers' minds upon a reread of this book. Hermione, who's been in the library working on trying to uncover the mystery of who took the real locket, answers Harry's R.I.B. query by saying that she hasn't found anything else useful on that front. But she has discovered something else. It's information about Sam. What about him? Harry asks. Well, it's just that I was sort of right about the Half-Blood Prince business, Hermione says. Harry isn't in the mood for another I told you so from Hermione, even if she, as she has so many times, 
indeed told him so. (laughs) No, Harry, it's not like that. As it turns out, Eileen Prince, the former student whom Hermione identified as a possible contender for being the Half-Blood Prince, is Snape's mother. She says, I was going through the rest of the old prophets and there was a tiny announcement about Eileen Prince marrying a man called Tobias Snape. Tobias, she reveals, was a muggle. Snape's self-assigned moniker was crafted to play up the magical side of his parentage. And this all makes sense to Harry, who falls again into a vortex of regret and recrimination. He's just like Voldemort, he says with Snape. Pure blood mother, muggle father ashamed of his parentage, trying to make himself feared using the dark arts, gave himself an impressive new name, Lord Voldemort, the half-blood prince. How could Dumbledore have missed? This is certainly one way to read Snape's sobriquet, but here's another. Recall Harry's own words to Hermione earlier in the book when he was defending the prince. If he'd been a budding Death Eater, he wouldn't have been boasting about being half-blood, would he? Snape chose to wear his half-blood status as a badge of pride to shun his muggle father, yes, but also to own the part of himself that he liked best and trusted in most. As Harry briefly saw during Occlumency lessons when he briefly infiltrated Snape's mind, and as we'll learn more about in The Prince's Tale, Snape's childhood was miserable, full of his father's neglect. Harry sees similarities between Snape and Voldemort, but there are also similarities between Snape and Harry, just as there are between Harry and Voldemort. As always, the differences stem less from their circumstances and abilities than from their choices. But here, now, Harry can't stop himself from harping on how and why Dumbledore trusted Snape. And yet, as Harry reflects here, he was also taken in by Snape. Quote, he had refused to believe ill of the boy who had been so clever, who had helped him so much. Helped him. It was an almost unbearable thought now. Ultimately, the bond that Harry felt with the prince in his book is the closest that Harry ever got to really engaging with Snape openly. It seems odd to say, given the shrouded nature of the prince's identity and the secrecy with which Harry guarded the book. But in scanning those pages, Harry was able to learn from Snape undeterred by prejudice and bias. And Snape was able to teach him absent the same. Yet in finding that trust and unlocking that kinship, Harry ignored the warning signs of the, quote, increasing nastiness of those scribbled spells. Imagine how desperate this feeling is for Harry now. If he had seen, could he have acted? Could that knowledge possibly have swayed Dumbledore in a way that nothing else had? Well, we have the knowledge to say, of course not. Dumbledore knows that Snape actually was a Death Eater. He was a budding Death Eater. Seeing Snape's boyhood scribbles would only align with what Dumbledore already knew to be true about that time in Snape's life. The greater cost is not what Harry failed to tell Dumbledore, but what he failed to see himself. Harry has relied on Dumbledore so fully for so long. His rage over Dumbledore's secrecy often stemmed in part from that reliance. If he didn't need Dumbledore to guide him, didn't turn to him for counsel and knowledge, it wouldn't matter that he remained so guarded. Now, with Dumbledore gone, Harry must rely on himself. His friends, yes, of course. But he must be the one to lead them. Gone are the days when someone else was leading him. But can Harry lead others? Can he make decisions for himself if he was so taken in by his good friend, the prince? (laughs) It's on his mind. It's the kind of doubt that eats away at one's spirit and threatens to upend a mission before it even begins. But why, Ron wonders, didn't Snape turn Harry in when he realized Harry was using his old book? Mm -hmm. Quote, I don't think he wanted to associate himself with that book, said Hermione. I don't think Dumbledore would have liked it very much if he'd known. And even if Snape pretended it had been his, Slughorn would have recognized his writing at once. Anyway, 
The book was left in Snape's old classroom, and I'll bet Dumbledore knew his mother was called Prince. We can deduce now that while Hermione was right to say that Snape wanted to distance himself from the book, her reason may not be totally accurate. Snape has been honest with Dumbledore about his past. Dumbledore has looked into his eyes and has said, you disgust me. He's not running from Dumbledore, realizing who he was. He's running from it himself, from the reminder of his past life and all the mistakes and pain that it caused, from the memory of how his past misdeeds led to Lily's death. I should have shown the book to Dumbledore, said Harry. All that time he was showing me how Voldemort was evil, even when he was at school, and I had proof Snape was too. Evil is a strong word, said Hermione quietly. She and Ron don't want Harry putting so much blame on himself. None of us could have guessed Snape would, you know, said Ron. Snape isn't the only thing occupying Harry's thoughts, though. Here we go. Dumbledore's funeral is set for the next morning, and Harry has never attended a funeral before. Quote, he did not know what to expect and was a little worried about what he might see, about how he would feel. Again, this is such a human, relatable moment for Harry. It's never easy to face death. And Harry has lost so many people before. He's needed to cope more than anyone ever should have to with having a loved one ripped away. But he isn't sure if the funeral, the formality of it all, will make Dumbledore's death feel more real to him. Quote, though he had moments when the horrible fact of it threatened to overwhelm him, there were blank stretches of numbness where, despite the fact that nobody was talking about anything else in the whole castle, he still found it difficult to believe that Dumbledore had really gone. It's not, he reflects, like it was with Sirius, where he was fiercely searching for some loophole, some way to prove that it hadn't happened, some path to bringing a version, some version of Sirius back. But Dumbledore has been a constant in Harry's life amid a string of dangerous, devastating variables. And despite the resolute way in which Harry is thinking about the Horcruxes he must now endeavor to hunt, he still hasn't been able to fully process that the unchanging force has changed at last. It's like waking up and seeing that the sky is no longer blue, the ground no longer beneath your feet. And Harry knows that the funeral will crystallize that will force him to confront his grief in a way that's new, even to someone who's carried as much anguish as Harry has. He saw Dumbledore's body after the curse, after the fall. But what will it feel like now, after days without Dumbledore, after hearing people he loves and trusts discuss whether Hogwarts can even exist without the headmaster, to see his body again, to see proof of that absence from this point forward, of the twinkle in the eye across the desk? Remember what Dumbledore told Harry in the cave. Quote, There's nothing to be feared from a body, Harry, any more than there is anything to be feared from the darkness. Lord Voldemort, who of course secretly fears both, disagrees. But once again, he reveals his own lack of wisdom. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness. Nothing more. Harry doesn't fear death in the way that Voldemort does. He's experienced its cruel touch too many times before. When the moment comes, he'll walk toward it of his own accord in order to save his friends. What he fears is his own feelings. He fears what this latest loss, this latest cut of the knife on his already bleeding, wounded body will do to him. He fears whether he's really ready, without Dumbledore by his side, to do what he must do, to do what must be done. Quote, he felt in his pocket for the cold chain of the fake Horcrux, which he now carried with him everywhere, not as a talisman, but as a reminder of what it had cost and what remains still to do. Harry rises early the following day for the funeral to find a subdued castle. Harry found a home at Hogwarts and a family there, but he's always been a separate piece, an outsider. When Harry entered the wizarding world, he transitioned from 
anonymity to instant and inexplicable fame, discovering that the entire population of a rich and ancient culture knew and revered him was unsettling and strange. Harry, of course, needed a guide to that new world. Dumbledore was many things to Harry, father figure, mentor, role model, chess master, and of course, protector. The first of these, of which Harry was aware, anyway, was guide. Recall the scene from Stone in front of the mirror of Erised. Harry had become lost, of course, in this object, lost in the sight of his family, his mother and father waving and calling to him. On his third consecutive nighttime visit to it, he found Dumbledore waiting for him. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live, the headmaster told him. Those words flicker like a candle in the darkness, shepherding Harry and us back home. Dumbledore is gone, but his light remains, pointing Harry toward the end. Still, the hole that his death has made cannot be filled, and it is actually visible everywhere. In the great hall on the morning of the funeral, Harry looks up to the high table from the book. Professor McGonagall had left the throne-like chair in the middle of the staff table empty. Hagrid's chair is empty as well, but Minister of Magic Scrimgeour occupies Snape's. Malfoy is absent too, of course. Harry observes that Crabbe and Goyle hulking, though— They are looked oddly lonely without their leader between them. Harry hasn't thought about Malfoy much amid his obsessing over Snape and grieving over Dumbledore, but from the book, he had not forgotten the fear in Malfoy's voice on that tower top, nor the fact that he had lowered his wand before the other Death Eaters arrived. Harry did not believe that Malfoy would have killed Dumbledore. He remains repelled by Malfoy's infatuation with the Dark Arts, but, quote, now the tiniest drop of pity mingled with his dislike. He wonders where Malfoy is and what Voldemort is threatening now to make him do, holding his parents hostage as leverage. This introspection is huge for Harry, a real evolution in his ability to see even those he dislikes in degrees of gray instead of absolutes. It's something that Dumbledore wasn't able to teach him while he lived, but a lesson that Dumbledore's death has brought Harry at last, and a lesson he'll need to heed as he moves forward and so many other lives fall into his care. Ginny's nudge in the ribs breaks Harry's trance. It's time to walk out to the grounds. Though the school and the wizarding world at large are in shock, the rituals of mourning provide a framework, at least, for expressing respect, admiration, love for this fallen titan. The teachers and the students are dressed in their finery. Slughorn, garbed in emerald robes lined with silver. Professor Sprout, usually covered in dirt, spotless, with, quote, not a single patch on her hat. Even Filch is in a suit. She apparently excavated from under a layer of mothballs. And he's with Madame Pince. Maybe even in death, love can bloom. Quote, They were heading, as Harry saw when he stepped out onto the stone steps from the front doors, toward the lake. The warmth of the sun caressed his face as they followed Professor McGonagall in silence to the place where hundreds of chairs had been set out in rows. An aisle ran down the center of them. There was a marble table standing at the front, all chairs facing it. It was the most beautiful summer's day. What a fitting setting for saying farewell to a man who so often felt like a beautiful summer day in Harry's life and in ours. And yet, as Harry has observed before, what a contradiction as well to the weight in his chest, the very air around him seeming like the upside-down version of his own pain, the very presence of the sun, both a beautiful restorative reminder that even amid our greatest suffering, life must and does go on, and also a hanging, glowing rebuttal to the current bone-deep belief in Harry that life will truly never be the same. The mourners are from every walk of magical life. 
The Order of the Phoenix is, of course, there. Tonks and Lupin are holding hands. The extended Weasley family is there, too, including Bill and Fleur and Fred and George, who are wearing matching dragon skin jackets. My guys are caking up. They look great. Hey, let's maybe keep track of who we're selling the Peruvian darkness powder to. They're on, the, they're on the goat app for Dragon Blazers, though, so they're busy, otherwise occupied. Ernie, driver of the night bus, and many more, including the barman from the Hogshead, who we learned in Deathly Hallows, is Albus's brother, Aberforth. Even the castle ghosts are there, quote, shimmering unsubstantially on the gleaming air. Everyone who knew and loved Dumbledore wants to say farewell. From the book, the crowd continued to swell with a great rush of affection for both of them. Harry saw Neville being helped into a seat by Luna. Neville and Luna alone of the DA had responded to Hermione's summons the night that Dumbledore had died, and Harry knew why. They were the ones who had missed the DA the most, probably the ones who had checked their coins regularly in the hope that there would be another meeting. Dumbledore's army. The name was simultaneously totally sincere and a goof. A wink at Umbridge and Fudge's most paranoid fears, but also a testament to Dumbledore's leadership and the lessons he tried to instill in his students, including friendship and unity. Neville and Luna never really had that before, but they found that with the DA and Harry and each other. The idea that they held on to their coins in the desperate hope that they'd hear the call of friendship again is deeply, deeply moving and a testament in Harry's moment of loneliness of the love that he's able to forge. The people that the group was named to mock, Fudge and Umbridge. They're here too, shamelessly going through the motions of paying tribute to the man they worked so hard to undermine. The sight of Ferenz, the centaur, standing at the edge of the lake gives Umbridge a start, and she slinks off to the edge of the gathering. Harry feels fury at the sight of these hypocrites. Harry next looks at Scrimgeour. Quote, he wondered whether Scrimgeour or any of these important people were really sorry that Dumbledore was dead. It's not that Harry believes he's the only one mourning. Quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. He knows how many people are feeling this loss keenly, but he also knows how many people tried to corrupt Dumbledore's reign and undermine his authority. How many people would have been glad to have him out of the way? But these thoughts are quickly forgotten when the sound of strange, otherworldly music begins to waft over the crowd. Quote, in there, whispered Ginny in Harry's ear. And he saw them in the clear green sunlit water inches below the surface, reminding him horribly of the inferi. A chorus of people singing in a strange language he did not understand. Their pallid faces rippling, their purplish hair flowing all around them. The music made the hair on Harry's neck stand up, and yet it was not unpleasant. It spoke very clearly of loss and despair. Here is the contrast to what Fudge and Umbridge and Scrimgeour represent. Here's a reminder of how many beings Dumbledore touched. How many he took the time to get to know. How many he made a mark on in some way. While people like Umbridge and Fudge and even Scrimgeour, who were ostensibly on the same side as the headmaster, are merely here because it's politically necessary for them to be. These creatures who take no part in the affairs of the wizarding world feel Dumbledore's loss keenly enough to pay their respects in this way. And then Hagrid arrives, walking down the aisle, face soaked with tears, his arms bearing Dumbledore's body, wrapped in purple velvet. There's something so poetic and touching about this moment. Hagrid, who lost his own father so young, and face such prejudice and hardship in the wizarding world, always looked to Dumbledore as a father figure. And now he's cradling the headmaster like a baby in his arms, bringing him to rest, to peace. From the book, a sharp pain rose in Harry's throat at this sight. For a moment, the strange music and knowledge that Dumbledore's body was so close seemed to take all the warmth from the day. Ron looked white and shocked. Tears were falling thick and fast onto both Ginny and Hermione's laps. Hagrid places the body upon a table and walks back loudly blowing his nose, drawing scandalized looks from some. 
from the book, but Harry knew that Dumbledore would not have cared. He wanted Hagrid and Harry and everyone else to find the courage to just be themselves. Yes. Harry watches Hagrid walk to the back road towards his guide. Grop. Big baby Grop, dressed for the occasion. From the book, his head bowed, docile, almost human. This is what Dumbledore was fighting for. This is what Harry is fighting for. Family and love, acceptance. The belief that we can find ourselves and each other, even when doing so seems impossible. When Hagrid sits, his half-brother pats him lovingly, sinking Hagrid's chair into the ground. From the book, Harry had a wonderful momentary urge to laugh. When the music stops, a tufty-haired wizard begins to speak, but only certain clipped phrases reach Harry. From the book, it did not mean very much. It had little to do with Dumbledore as Harry had known him. He suddenly remembered Dumbledore's idea of a few words, nitwit, oddment, blubber, and tweak, and again had to suppress a grin. What was the matter with him? Another keenly relatable moment, the nervous laughter, the anxious energy that can overtake you in a moment of pain, a moment when trying to cope seems like an impossible dream. Harry hears a soft splash as the mer people break the water's edge and recalls Dumbledore crouching there to consult the mer chieftainess during the second task of the Triwizard Tournament. Harry finds himself wondering how Dumbledore had learned the language. Quote, there was so much he had never asked him. <laughs> this is going to be really hard. So much he should have said. And then without warning, it swept over him. The dreadful truth more completely and undeniably than it had until now. Dumbledore was dead. Gone. He clutched the cold locket in his hand so tightly that it hurt, but he could not prevent hot tears spilling from his eyes. (laughs) Same, Harry. This is pure, unfiltered agony. Harry's own anguished acknowledgement, his own stricken lament, Falling from his eyes at last, spurred by the sight of Dumbledore's still body, yes, but also by the reminders of Dumbledore's life. As he looks away from his friends and toward the forest, he sees the centaurs, who have also come to pay tribute. The centaurs, who loathe so many humans, who view them as largely entitled and weak and misguided trespassers in their land, greedy for their knowledge and their skill. Dumbledore's influence transcended all of that. As Harry allows his grief to overcome him, allows his humanity to well up inside of him and give shape and expression to his pain, he takes in not only the many lives that Dumbledore touched, but the imprint that Dumbledore left on his own. Looking at the centaurs, he recalls his first trip into the forest in Sorcerer's Stone and his first encounter with, quote, the thing that was then Voldemort. And how he and Dumbledore had discussed thereafter the nature of fighting what seems to be a losing battle. Quote, It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting. For only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Recall the conversation between Beric and John in Beyond the Wall, Season 7, Episode 6. We spoke about both of these passages when we discussed that episode of Game of Thrones, and now we can consider the parallels anew from the other side. These are moments we return to so often because they symbolize so much about the hero's burden so much of the isolating weight that Harry and John alike feel, but also so much of the purpose derived from staring into the heart of that burden and seeking to understand it and your own worthiness alike. I don't think it's our purpose to understand, Beric says to John, except one thing. We're soldiers. We have to know what we're fighting for. I'm not fighting so some man or woman I barely know can sit on a throne made of swords. So what are you fighting for? John asks him. 
life. Death is the enemy, the first enemy and the last. But we all die, John says. The enemy always wins, and we still need to fight him. That's all I know. You and I won't find much joy while we're here, but we can keep others alive. We can defend those who can't defend themselves. I am the shield that guards the realms of men, John says. Maybe we don't need to understand any more than that, Barak replies. Maybe that's enough. But Harry and John have always sought understanding, craved it like mother's milk, like the sustenance of life itself. They've been deprived of that understanding so many times by so many people in so many situations about the most fundamental questions that any of us can face in life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I fighting for? John, a boy who grew up without a mother, feeling like an outsider in his own home, wondering why it had to be this way and whether it would ever, could ever change, hears that it's not his purpose to understand. Harry, who was famous before knowing why, was marked for death before even getting a chance to live, lost the people who gave him love, and then the one who finally was giving him answers. What's left to fill that devastating void, if not the quest for understanding, purpose, and love? Assuming the hero's mantle, internalizing the words that give shape to the task ahead. The enemy always wins, and we still need to fight him. It was important to fight and fight again and keep fighting. John and Harry cannot control who enters or leaves their lives and their hearts, but they can choose what they do with the time that they're given, with the paths laid out before them, even if they didn't lay those paths themselves. They get to decide whether to walk down them. They get to decide to do so with, as Harry once thought, their heads held high. They get to decide that bringing comfort and safety to others is more than an idea. They get to decide that destiny is not determined, but earned. These words from Harry, Dumbledore, Barrick, and John recall something else, something that hasn't yet crossed our path. James and Lily's headstone, white like Dumbledore's, will soon be engraved with these words, quote, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. When Harry sees this at Godric's Hollow, he's briefly horrified. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? He'll ask Hermione. Why is that there? But as Hermione notes in reply, it's not about Voldemort's version of concrete death. It's not about winning or outlasting. It's about accepting it. It's about finding a different kind of life, a different kind of purpose. She says, it means, you know, living beyond death, Hermione will tell Harry, living after death. We'll discuss the religious imagery and ideals that populate Hallows and indeed the entire story at length when we explore Book 7. But consider this idea here in the light of the phoenix as we talked about earlier in the episode. Renewal, rebirth, life in new forms, and hope in new forms too. Every individual person's belief is valid. Not everyone believes or even wants to believe the same thing. But there's something so beautiful and enviable about achieving this conviction, something that speaks so strongly to J.K.'s ability to, without judgment or pressure for the reader to necessarily agree, to recognize what finding this clarity can open up for a person. It's natural to ask questions. It's natural to want to understand. But that's where, quote, maybe that's enough comes in. Faith doesn't come from proof. Faith comes from finding and maintaining trust absent proof. But faith can be hard to find and harder still to maintain. Right now, for Harry and his seat at Dumbledore's funeral, the sun and his tears on his face, his memories of Dumbledore's lessons and his regret over all that he failed to ask coursing through him, a different kind of clarity takes hold in the form of one of the series' most achingly beautiful and deeply sad passages. Quote, And Harry saw very clearly as he sat there under the hot sun how people who cared about him had stood in front of him one by one, 
his mother, his father, his godfather, and finally Dumbledore, all determined to protect him. But now that was over. He could not let anybody else stand between him and Voldemort. He must abandon forever the illusion he ought to have lost at the age of one. That the shelter of a parent's arms meant that nothing could hurt him. There was no waking from his nightmare, no comforting whisper in the dark that he was safe, really, that it was all in his imagination. The last and greatest of his protectors had died, and he was more alone than he had ever been before. Now, Harry is not alone. Ron and Hermione are with him. Ginny, too. The Weasleys, Neville and Luna, Remus and Tonks, McGonagall, Hagrid. On and on the list goes. So many friends and followers, people who believe in Harry and his war, who will gladly lay down their lives for him. But that, of course, is what he fears. He doesn't want anybody else to die for him. Doesn't want to feel this pain again. So many would look upon Harry with envy, lusting after his fame and his fortune, hungry for his skill eager for one taste of life as the chosen one. But to Harry, being the chosen one isn't a blessing. It's a terrible burden, one that's cost him too much already and one he can't allow to cost him or anyone else more still. The life that so many think they want feels like a nightmare to him, a waking hell that he must escape before it swallows him and everyone else he loves whole. Harry is experiencing his version of atoning with the father entering the abyss. But his version of apotheosis is corrupted by the exile that he believes he must self-impose. He has new knowledge and new perception about his task, about the mantle he must assume, but not yet about the way in which he must assume it. As Dumbledore told Harry, he needs his friends. That comforting whisper will come from Ron and Hermione, even at the end in a moment when Harry truly is more alone than he had ever been before, afraid even to face Ron and Hermione for fear that he would not then have the strength to walk away again. He'll turn the resurrection stone. You'll stay with me? He'll ask his mother and father and Sirius and Lupin then. Until the very end, James will say. They're a part of him, Sirius will tell him then. And they're a part of him now too, just as Ron and Hermione are and just as Dumbledore is. But as Harry sits simultaneously unmoored and focused, by this despair, he doesn't feel a part of anything, nor that anything is a part of him. He feels an incomparable solitude, but from that loneliness, purpose. When the eulogizer stops speaking, Harry is expecting speeches, but he's greeted instead by screams. From the book, bright white flames had erupted around Dumbledore's body and the table upon which it lay. Higher and higher they rose, obscuring the body. White smoke spiraled into the air and made strange shapes. Harry thought, for one heart-stopping moment that he saw a phoenix fly joyfully into the blue. But next second, the fire had vanished. In its place was a white marble tomb encasing Dumbledore's body and the table on which he had rested. Do you remember the hope this phoenix gave you the moment you allowed yourself to dream that maybe Dumbledore would return? It's more powerful this way. Remember what Dumbledore told Harry after Cedric's death and Harry's return from witnessing Voldemort's resurrection. Quote, no spell can reawaken the dead. But Dumbledore will live on for Harry, and in so many other forms, in the locket in his hand, in the words they'll share at King's Cross, and the exchanges Harry will go on to have with Dumbledore's portrait and cursed child, not canon, but most of all, in Harry's head and heart. 
It does not do to dwell on dreams. No, but it does do to remember that the dead we've loved never truly leave us. All around Harry, reminders of the fibers of Dumbledore's being that are ingrained in the world around him rain down, literally like arrows from the centaur's bows in tribute. Harry looks at his friends. Ron is screwing up his face to fight off tears. Hermione is openly weeping. From the book, but Ginny was no longer crying. She met Harry's gaze with the same hard, blazing look that he'd seen when she'd hugged him after winning the Quidditch Cup in his absence. And he knew that at that moment, they understood each other perfectly. He knows that she's not going to try to talk him out of what awaits, or even the way in which he intends to travel that path. He steals himself. Quote, Ginny, listen, I can't be involved with you anymore. We've got to stop seeing each other. We can't be together. She smiles at him knowingly. So full of love and understanding of who he is, of what he's been through, of what he must now do. Quote, it's for some stupid noble reason, isn't it? <laughs> She's the best. And he says, it's been like, like something out of someone else's life these last few weeks with you. But I can't, we can't. I've got things to do alone now. That Harry thinks the very idea of happiness— the very fact of his own pleasure and joy feels like something out of someone else's life is desperately sad. Harry's acknowledgement not only of how little happiness he's known in his life, but of how little he thinks he deserves it. And he tells Ginny that Voldemort will go after those closest to him. Quote, he'll try and get to me through you. And they both know what that looks like, having been through a version of it before in the Chamber of Secrets. And that was Lucius's choice to put the diary into play not Voldemort's. That was because Ginny was Arthur's daughter and Harry's best friend's sister, not because she was Harry's love. Imagine how bad it would be now. Here we should consider how Voldemort's shadow has loomed over this book, casting our hero's lives in darkness. Part of what makes Half-Blood Prince such a towering achievement is that Voldemort does not appear in it in the present day. And yet we feel his leer on every page, hear his cold laugh in our minds, see his pale skin and red eyes and slit-like nostrils when we close our eyes. Every memory showed us more about Tom Riddle. And so even though he's not sticking out a quarrel's head or coming out of a diary or rising from a cauldron or whispering, can't I, Potter, as he enters the halls of the Ministry of Magic, he somehow feels more present and inescapable than ever before. Journeying into the memories and the cave alike took us into Voldemort's mind and heart, such as it is. Dumbledore's absence robs us of that protective layer between us and the Dark Lord, the Patronus-like force that always made us and Harry feel safe. That's the illusion that we, along with Harry, have lost. And in place of that comforting arm, there's certainty. The battle to come and the foe waiting at the end. Ginny asks Harry, what if I don't care? We've heard similar things from Fleur and Tonks have come to believe truly that love can conquer all, but Harry cares. He says, how do you think I'd feel if this was your funeral and it was my fault? He's so afraid of what his mere existence has cost those around him, so afraid of what his choices to come could cost others still. He wants Ginny's love. It awoke in him a belief in a different kind of happiness. But more than anything, he wants to keep her safe. From the book, I never really gave up on you, she said. Not really. I always hoped. And this is heartrending stuff. Yeah. A proclamation and a promise alike. She didn't give up on him before. She's not going to now. Harry tells her that he wishes they'd found each other in this way sooner. We could have had ages, months, years maybe. So much time by the lake. Yeah, so much time by the lake. They will in the end, though. But Harry can't see that now. He sees only the mission and the damage it could bring. Ginny tells him she's not surprised and that maybe this is actually what she loves so much about him in a way. He wants to save people. 
Harry thinks so much about his protectors, but he's a protector to so many. Worrying about how long his resolve will hold if he stays by Ginny's side, he looks around. From the book, Ron, he saw, was now holding Hermione and stroking her hair while she sobbed into his shoulder, tears dripping from the end of his own long nose. Love it. More love and blue. More love mixed up with pain. He gets up. Moving feels better than just sitting. Quote, just as setting out as soon as possible to track down the Horcruxes and kill Voldemort would feel better than waiting to do it. As he walks, he hears someone call his name. It's Scrimgeour. He says, I've been hoping to have a word. Do you mind if I walk a little way with you? Scrimgeour laments the, quote, dreadful tragedy and praises Dumbledore despite their differences. Harry isn't in the mood for politicking. What do you want? He notes that before Scrimgeour recovers, he looks annoyed. Quote, you are, of course, devastated, he said. I know that you were very close to Dumbledore. I think you may have been his favorite pupil ever, the bond between the two of you. What do you want? Harry repeated, coming to a halt. He won't stand here and listen to this man who didn't know him or Dumbledore at all. Talk about him. He can't abide it. At last, the minister drops the bullshit, gets to the point. He wants to know where Dumbledore and Harry were the night the headmaster died. They found two broomsticks atop the tower, he says. And Harry refuses to share. He says it's their business, his and Dumbledore's. Quote, he didn't want people to know. The minister asks, in essence, what the point of what he goes out of his way to label as admirable loyalty is. Now that Dumbledore's gone. And this is a true failure to understand not only the bond that Harry and Dumbledore shared, but really relationships and loyalty in general. And what's more, as Harry says in reply, gone is a bit too fine a point to put on it. Quote, he will only be gone from the school when none here are loyal to him, Harry says, parroting the headmaster's own words from his ouster in Chamber of Secrets, showing the same soul-deep loyalty that called Fox to Harry in the Chamber of Secrets when Harry shouted this sentiment at Tom Riddle's hazy form. He's a good friend. He's a great friend. When Scrimgeour says that not even Dumbledore can return from the dead, Harry tells him rightly that he wouldn't understand. But Harry does. He's achieved such newfound understanding in this sense. As much as he misses Dumbledore, as much as he wishes it could be another way, and that those buckled boots and half-moon spectacles could be next to him right now discussing R.A.B. and working to find the other Horcruxes, he knows on some level that Dumbledore is and will always be with him. Dumbledore once told Harry that, quote, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. He felt that way, and Harry does too. In Deathly Hallows, Dumbledore will tell Harry, quote, do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. Dumbledore has moved on to that next great adventure. Harry is among the living, the lonely, the lost. But he's learning with every thought, with every conversation, with every challenge to his mission and his conviction to find purpose in that pity. When Scrimgeour tells Harry that the ministry can protect him, Harry actually laughs. Voldemort wants to kill him. Orners aren't stopping that. The minister again broaches his request. Harry positions it as the bullshit facade it is, Scrimgeour as, quote, raising everyone's morale. Harry asks if they released Stan Shunpike yet. This seems in many ways an odd sticking point, but it represents so much about who Harry is and how he behaves. He's loyal, he's true, he's willing to speak truth to power. He won't give up on the fight. From the book, Scrimgeour turned a nasty purple color, highly reminiscent of Uncle Vernon. I see you are Dumbledore's man through and through said Harry. That's right. The minister walks away defeated, and Ron and Hermione rush toward Harry. They want to know what the minister wanted. Ron also wants to kick Percy, who's lurking there looking like a piece of shit. <laughs> It'll make me feel better, he says. Harry laughs. Hermione grins, but not for long. 
As she looks at the castle, she says that she can't bear the idea that they might never come back. Ron says that maybe the school won't close. He says, everywhere is the same now. I'd even say Hogwarts is safer. Ah, I mean, it's not untrue. Even amid the turmoil that just upended their world and claimed the headmaster's life, we're getting a no safer place moment. But then Harry shows how very much things have changed. I'm not coming back, even if it does reopen, he says. Ron's stunned, but Hermione says, I knew you were going to say that. But then what will you do? He tells them he'll go to Privet Drive, as Dumbledore wanted, and then perhaps to Godric's Hollow from the book. For me, it started there, all of it. I've just got a feeling I need to go there, and I can visit my parents' graves. I'd like that. Part of assuming the mantle means making it his mantle, understanding his own past, his own history. And then what? Ron asks. Well, then it's Horcrux hunting time. Harry again uses that got-to language that Dumbledore tried to break him of, but he speaks with unshakable determination. There are four, he says, uh, five, my guy, Horcruxes to find, and he must find them and destroy them. And then he must go after Voldemort. Quote, and if I meet Severus Snape along the way, so much the better for me, so much the worse for him. He'll meet Snape indeed, and the meeting will change the course of Harry's life. This proclamation initially brings silence, but then Ron speaks. We'll be there, Harry. What? At your aunt and uncle's house, and then we'll go with you wherever you're going. Harry tries to tell them, no, this is not what I meant. This is not what I want. He just broke up with Ginny to keep her safe, and he wants to protect Ron and Hermione too. But their friendship isn't something that he has to ask for. It's elemental, eternal, unconditional. You said to us once before, said Hermione quietly, that there was time to turn back if we wanted to. We've had time, haven't we? We're with you, whatever happens, Ron says. And though that promise will be tested cruelly over the course of Deathly Hallows, and though they will not always prove equal to it in the moment, though ultimately they will in the end, it will hold, proving to be the truest thing in the world, the real constant in Harry's life. Ron tells him there's just one thing that they'll have to do before setting out to find those bits of Voldemort's soul. Go to the borough for Bill and Floor's wedding. Don't forget about that, guys. <sighs> Check the registry. Quote, Harry looked at him, startled. The idea that anything as normal as a wedding could still exist seemed incredible and yet wonderful. They can't miss that. It's a reminder of what they're working to protect, a reminder of who they're working to protect. It's the very thing that they have and that Voldemort doesn't have and doesn't want. It's what saved Harry so many times before and what will save him in the end. Buoyed by this reminder of love's power and the comforting rhythms of everyday life, Harry's hand closes around the locket in his pocket. Quote, in spite of everything. In spite of the dark and twisting path he saw stretching ahead for himself. In spite of the final meeting with Voldemort he knew must come, whether in a month, in a year, or in ten. He felt his heart lift at the thought that there was still one last golden day of peace left to enjoy with Ron and Hermione. Oh, man. I think this is my favorite end to any of the books. It's great. It really, like, slingshot. Like, I was unable to not read onto Hallows after that. It just slingshots you forward. It's incredible. Perfect book. Truly a perfect book. Jason? Yes. After all, Young and Whole podcasts do not necessarily remain so. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about werewolves. (laughs) 
Dolores Umbridge, noted bigot and vindictive legislator, is unfortunately not the only witcher wizard to discriminate against werewolves. Rather, they have been maligned and shunted to the edge of wizarding society for centuries. That yields two questions. First, how does lycanthropy work? And second, why do they face so much discrimination? First question starts with a werewolf bite, because that's the only way to become a werewolf. It can't happen via spell or potion, only from being bitten by one in wolfish form at the full moon and surviving the ensuing wound. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, it is this specific process that produces the condition. Quote, when the werewolf's saliva mingles with the victim's blood, contamination will occur. A 19th century study by werewolf expert Marlo Forfang found that nearly every werewolf had been magical before being bitten. This was perhaps, Forfang found, because muggles tasted different than magical people and were therefore less appetizing targets. Or perhaps because muggles were more likely to die of their wounds, while witches and wizards were more likely to survive into werewolfhood. Being a werewolf is a painful process, even beyond the social alienation. The condition produces ill effects, both leading up to and following the full moon, and even with recent innovations in the medical field, most notably the Wolfsbane Potion invented by Damocles, a slughorn favorite, it produces a trying time every month. And when not treated, werewolves are dangerous. Umbridge isn't wrong about this much, at least. Their physical differences from actual wolves are subtle, with a shorter snout and smaller eye pupils, and in some cases a tufted rather than bushy tail but the behavioral differences are stark. While actual wolves only attack humans in exceptional circumstances, werewolves seek them out specifically and act with incredible aggression. As Rowling writes, while in his or her wolfish form, the werewolf loses entirely its human sense of right or wrong. Which leads to the second question about werewolf discrimination. The threat that they pose is the main reason here because ignorant witches and wizards believe the werewolf's mental faculties to be tainted even in human form. Rowling describes a famous book titled Lupine Lawlessness, Why Lycanthropes Don't Deserve to Live, which argues that werewolves, quote, suffer from a permanent loss of moral sense, as influencing public opinion in this area, even though that claim is completely false. Werewolves in human form are just like normal humans, with a wide range from good, Remus Lupin, for instance, to evil, like Fenrir Greyback. Problems with werewolves extend beyond the social to the governmental, too. For centuries, the ministry couldn't even decide how to classify werewolves and instead alternately govern them as subject to either the beast or being division. Rowling writes, quote, nobody could make up their minds whether a werewolf should be classified as human or bestial. At one point, the werewolf registry and werewolf capture unit were both in the beast division, while at the same time, an office for werewolf support services was established in the being division. The social pressures on werewolves intersected with these governing problems to produce more adverse effects. Even before the ministry existed back in 1637, wizarding leaders developed and asked werewolves to sign the Werewolf Code of Conduct, which included the promise to lock themselves up every month and not attack anyone. But nobody signed this code because nobody wanted to admit being a werewolf. Since the publication of the seven main Potterbrooks, Rowling has said that she intended werewolfism as a symbolic stand-in for HIV because of the unfair societal shunning associated with the condition. In a Potter-centric trivia book, she wrote, all kinds of superstitions seem to surround bloodborne conditions, probably due to taboos surrounding blood itself. The wizarding community is as prone to hysteria and prejudice as the muggle one, and the character of Lupin gave me a chance to examine those attitudes. She received some fair amount of criticism for this comparison, however, because of both the conflation of a mythical disease with a real one that affects real people, and the fact that, for instance, lycanthropy turns people, even Lupin and Azkaban, into vicious amoral beasts, while HIV obviously does not. Werewolves might not fit as aptly as Rowling intended as a metaphor, but in the fictional world of the Potterverse, at least, the spectrum of werewolf characters work quite well. 
that spectrum of characters is also largely connected, and the shades along that spectrum are tied to the larger societal discussions surrounding lycanthropy. In fact, Remus Lupin himself was attacked after his father, Lyal, a worker in the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, insulted Fenrir Greyback by expressing his hatred of werewolves. Fenrir had been brought in for questioning about the death of two muggle children and feigned that he was a muggle. Lyall thought he was hiding something and declared that werewolves were, quote, soulless, evil, deserving nothing but death. And after the rest of the questioners fell for Fenrir's story and let him free, Greyback took revenge by biting the then five-year-old Remus as he slept. Lyall soon that his son's condition didn't change his essence as a person, but the rest of society obviously wasn't so understanding. Lupin and Greyback are the two most prominent werewolves in the story, and each teaches us further lessons about the condition. From Lupin, with whom Tonks birthed a child, we learn some lessons about werewolf mating, chiefly that lycanthropy is not a heritable condition because Rowling has said little Teddy didn't follow in his father's wolfish steps. There is one more curious aspect of werewolf offspring not connected to Lupin. As we mentioned in the restricted section for the Forbidden Forest, if two werewolves have sex while transformed, the resulting children will be wolf cubs that resemble actual wolves in everything except their extreme intelligence. Aww. And for Greyback, who bites Bill when not transformed, we know that the victims of such attacks, if they survive, will not sustain any long-term effects beyond some mild characteristics, like Bill's fondness for extra rare meat. Rowling writes that the scarring from a werewolf attack, however, will last forever. But as we learn from Fleur in this section, Bill's betrothed doesn't mind. They show he's brave. And anyway, she's good looking enough for both of them. I think. <laughs> she sure is. Jason, it would take more than a werewolf. To stop Bill loving foreshadowing as well. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince, chapters 29 and 30. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. As Harry contemplates the task ahead, he thinks about the four, again, five, horcruxes that remain. Quote, he kept reciting their names to himself as though by listing them he could bring them within reach. The locket, the cup, the snakes, something of Gryffindors or Ravenclaws. The locket, the cup, the snakes, something of Gryffindors or Ravenclaws. This mantra seemed to pulse through Harry's mind as he fell asleep at night. We often compare Harry and our favorite hero, Jon Snow, as we did earlier on this very episode. But here, we can't help but note how Harry recalls one Arya Stark, famed for reciting a list of her own before bed every night. Number two, from that same stretch of the white tomb, quote, his dreams were thick with cups, lockets, and mysterious objects that he could not quite reach, though Dumbledore helpfully offered Harry a rope ladder that turned to snakes the moment he began to climb. Harry's dreams always offer clues, and this is no exception. Here we have clear foreshadowing for both Harry's role as the final Horcrux, the mysterious object linked with snakes that represent Voldemort, and Dumbledore's role in shielding that truth from Harry until the very end. Number three, when Ginny tells Harry that, quote, everything seemed to just miss us, it's a testament to the protection that his Felix Felicis gift provided, but also something more, a precursor for Harry's sacrifice in Deathly Hallows and how the Death Eater's curses will miss his friends after that. From Hallows, quote, I meant to, and that's what did it. I've done what my mother did. They're protected from you. Haven't you noticed how none of the spells you put on them are binding? You can't torture them. You can't touch them. You don't learn from your mistakes, Riddle. Do you? Good shit. <laughs> Number four. Elements of Half-Blood Princess plot were originally in Chamber of Secrets. Rowling said in 2004 on her original website, quote, there is no trace of the Half-Blood Prince storyline left in Chamber of Secrets. Rather, 
The link between the two books relates to a discovery Harry made in Chamber of Secrets that foreshadows something he finds out in Half-Blood Prince. Certain crucial pieces of information in Book 6 were originally planned for Chamber of Secrets. Rowling has not specified what exactly those plot points are, but it's fascinating to think about. The diary was a horcrux. <laughs> Number five. <laughs> <laughs> Number five. At the funeral, quote, Harry next recognized Rita Skeeter, who he was infuriated to see had a notebook clutched in her red talon hand. We know from Deathly Hallows what Rita is working on. She will take great effort to document Dumbledore's life and his past in her book, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. Number six, when Ron reveals that Draco used Peruvian instant darkness powder to, to facilitate his escape from the room of requirement, he says, Fred and George's. I'm going to be having a word with them about who they let buy their products. Well, Juan Juan, in just a few years, you'll be able to make those decisions for yourself. When after leaving your career as an aura behind, you become a partner. Read Shop Boy. Also, yeah, maybe just fill out like some forms, a background check when you're going to buy stuff that could facilitate attacks. Tough to assess everything that Fred and George's merchandise was used for over the course it's of very, the year. I mean, they literally became arms dealers at one point over the course of these chapters. <laughs> some might say the love potions are the most dangerous of all, Slughorn would say. Number seven, also at the funeral, Harry notices people he, quote, merely knew by sight, such as the barman of the Hogshead. We mentioned that line earlier. Why does it matter? Well, as we said earlier, that's Aberforth, and we can't help but wonder if the last funeral at which Aberforth and Albus were both present in some form was the one at which Aberforth punched his brother in the nose, their sister, Ariana's. Mal, hmm. what do I get about how binge mode looks? I'm good looking enough for all of us, I think. As is today's champion, every episode we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most, and today... We're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. The gorgeous. <laughs> the beautiful. Fleur Delacour. What a time for Fleur. Look, very sad chapters, and she provides not only humor or levity, but... A reminder of the power of love. She displays her true affection for Bill while also dishing out the iconic, I am good looking enough for both of us, I think, line, which is an all-timer. Truly, it is. I mean, let me just fact check that. Uh, true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, reconciles with Molly Weasley after their brief heated exchange and obtains Molly's acceptance in the form of Muriel's tiara. She really proves herself to she Molly does. in that moment. She also inspires Tonks and Lupin. To yeah. revisit their deliberations on romantic entanglement, which eventually leads to their marriage and Teddy Lupin's birth, a legacy of their love after their deaths. And she declares to cook the newly wolfish Bill some rare steaks because the British overcooks their meat. Delicious. All right, friends. Dumbledore would have been happier than anybody to think there was a little more binge mode in the world. And a little more Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had... As much, uh, not fun, but catharsis maybe, yeah. as we did today, and that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing the Half-Blood Prince film adaptation. Get ready to burn the burrow down with us! <laughs> burn that shit down! <laughs> Who needs it? <laughs> Until then, remember, it's been like, like something out of some other podcaster's life. 
these last few months with you. So any changes in uh, Bill? Any side effects? Well, he likes the raw, you know, the bloody steak. No, uh, I have already said this is good because uh, the British, as we know, overcooks their meat. Anything else? Well, you know, nothing, uh, nothing. You know, he's become, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, don't tell Molly this, but uh, <laughs> oh, God. slightly more adventurous in the, <laughs> the bedroom. <laughs> Likes, uh, you know, as they say in the, as they say in the English. The doggy style, he, he, he likes, he likes this now, it's very aggressive and it's quite good, to be honest with you. Tongue is more lapping now, a lapping kind of uh, action. It's all in all, it's very good, I have to say. And you know, with the, his uh, taste for uh, rare meat, you know, let's, let's just say that uh, the loving is... Uh, for uh, the entire time of the month, if you know what I'm saying now. <laughs> That's all. <laughs>